You are listening to As a Woman, Episode 20, PCOS. Listen as we talk about polycystic ovarian syndrome, or PCOS. Learn about what PCOS is, what causes it, and what you can do about it. Learn about the impact of lifestyle factors to help control PCOS and your options for fertility treatments. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hi, friends. Welcome back to As a Woman. You are listening to episode 20, PCOS. This is probably one of the most requested fertility episodes. And I talk about PCOS all the time. Probably every single day in my clinic, there is some mention of PCOS. What it is, what it isn't, how we diagnose it, how we treat it. And there are entire podcasts, whole series devoted to PCOS. And we're going to try to go over it in just one episode to give you my take on what PCOS is, how we treat it, how we manage it, and what we can do about it. So the first thing is, I hate the name. Probably every REI you will ever talk to will say, oh, PCOS, it's a terribly named disease because it is a terribly named disease. This is a bad name. It makes you think that the cysts are the problem. And I'm going to say this, PCOS is not a cause of not ovulating, it's a consequence. And I'm going to go into that when we talk about the diagnosis. But the disease is named because polycystic ovarian syndrome means that there are lots of small cysts in the ovary. And what are cysts? A cyst is a fluid-filled structure on ultrasound. So a follicle is a cyst. Yep, when you are about to ovulate and you have a follicle, that's a cyst. And so PCOS means a woman has lots of small follicles that are not responding to hormones. So it is not the problem. The cysts themselves are not a problem. But PCOS is the consequence of the problem, which is hormone dysfunction. And so I'm going to dive right in to what PCOS is. And the truth is that I will often tell patients PCOS is like a stubborn ovary. And I don't think that's an inaccurate statement, but it's certainly simplifying the problem. The real problem here is that the communication between the brain and the ovary is dysfunctional. So you know, if you've listened to this podcast before, that the brain sends out two different hormones to the ovary, FSH, which is follicle-stimulating hormone, and LH, which is a luteinizing hormone. They do different things. So in the simplest way to think about it, FSH controls a follicle growing. That's what happens in the first half of a cycle that causes you to then ovulate. And LH is then the hormone that helps stimulate progesterone production. That makes you feel like there's no LH happening in the follicular phase, but there really is. LH is also very important in the production of hormones. The ovary is a hormone-making factory. I know you probably never thought of that before, that you are a woman and your ovary is a hormone-making factory, but it is, and it is controlled by these hormones. And LH is really the stimulus for steroidogenesis or the making of hormones. What happens, though, 
in PCOS is that the brain tends to send out an abnormal signal. So LH and FSH, they're both secreted in pulses at different frequencies and different amplitudes. But the easiest way to think about it is there's an increase in LH. So the pulse frequency, so it starts being secreted at a faster rate, which leads to the ovary getting stimulated to make androgens over estrogens. And androgens are your male hormones. And the ovary, the steroid hormone-making powerhouse that it is, loves to do its job. And so it hears LH and it says, oh, I'm going to make some hormones. And it makes lots of male hormones. What also happens is that the ovary is a little stubborn when it comes to making follicles or making a follicle to ovulate. So remember back to that menstrual cycle episode or to age and fertility when I use my favorite analogy, which is a woman is born with all the eggs she's ever going to have and they're trapped in a vault inside her ovary. And at the start of every month, a group of eggs is released from the vault. This process constantly happens, and these eggs are waiting to get a signal from the brain, and the brain signal is FSH. Well, in PCOS, the number of eggs released from the vault is really high, and the signal FSH from the brain is normal. And the signal gets dispersed between all of these eggs, and none of them respond. There's so many, the signal becomes so faint between all of them that it's not strong enough to get just one to respond. And maybe you're listening saying, well, I don't understand that. Like you've told me before that FSH and estrogen are communicating to each other. So if the ovary is not ovulating, why is it not signaling to the brain to send out a higher pulse of FSH? And the truth is it can't. So every small antral follicle makes some estrogen. Usually, that number is very low. So when they're just in the antral follicle stage or the I'm not growing stage of follicle development, then this low estrogen level tells the brain, hey, you need to send out more estrogen. But in PCOS, there are so many small follicles all making a small amount of estrogen. It is just enough estrogen to prevent the brain from sending out a stronger signal. So the brain sends out just the regular amount. The signal's getting dispersed, but there's enough small estrogen being produced to tell the brain, hey, we're good. The way I describe this to patients, so essentially the exact same thing, is that more eggs are released from the vault that month. The FSH signal is getting dispersed, and so no follicle is being made. However, all those small follicles are making just enough estrogen to prevent the brain and ovary from communicating properly. However, the ovary is a powerhouse hormone-making machine, and it likes to do its job right. So it can't really make enough estrogen, so it makes testosterone. The pathway for the LH to androgen production becomes the preferred pathway and it becomes easier. So those male hormones are made in a much higher production rate than the estrogen production rate. And therefore, you're getting a hormone imbalance. And I'm going to say this. If all of that talk sounds like I have no idea what you are talking about, 
then go ahead and stop here, go back, listen to the menstrual cycle episode. That's episode six. Okay, now you're all caught up on FSH, LH, and the normal cycle, and then come back here. One thing I haven't talked about in the pathway of PCOS is insulin. And insulin is extremely important, and it's important that we understand it because often I find that patients hear a lot about insulin, but they don't really understand it, and there's a lot of bad info. In its simplest form, insulin helps your body do two things. Use glucose or sugar and store glucose or sugar. So by using it, that allows your cells to uptake the sugar that you have for energy. And insulin resistance is when the cells are no longer uptaking the glucose in response to the insulin. Therefore, the cells feel like they have low glucose levels, and the liver actually starts to break down glucose to give more sugar to you. So you get into this pathway where the blood sugar level is actually pretty high, yet the cells are unable to utilize the amount that they need. And the body has high insulin levels because the pancreas, which is the organ that makes insulin, is working overtime in order to try to get more insulin because the body's saying, we need more sugar in our cells. It can't utilize the sugar that is in our blood. And listen to the actions of insulin on the reproductive hormones. So insulin stimulates increased ovarian androgen production. What does that mean? It means that it is causing the body to make more LH, and therefore the ovary is being shifted to make even more androgens. This is one of the huge problems with PCOS. It is also preventing the liver from making a hormone called sex hormone binding globulin. And sex hormone binding globulin, SHBG, if you've ever seen that around, floats around your blood and it binds to your free hormones. What happens is it loves to bind to your free testosterone and your body can't use hormones that are bound to SHBG. So if you have high SHBG levels, super good, you can't access this floating around testosterone. It's like it's not there. But when your sex hormone binding globulin levels are low, that means there's actually less testosterone that's bound and more testosterone that is free and circulating around your body, causing impacts on your cells. So insulin, in addition to all the other actions it has on the body, is causing your ovaries to make more androgens and causing more of those androgens to be free in your bloodstream and have clinical signs and symptoms. Now, not every woman with PCOS has insulin resistance. That is not what happens to everybody. It's the majority, so 50 to 70% will, but there are some women with PCOS who do not have insulin resistance, and so that should come to tell us, hey, this is not a primary cause of PCOS, although it is a large contributor to making the disease worse for the vast majority of women. And let's also talk about obesity. Obesity both predisposes you to PCOS and makes PCOS worse. The reason why is your fat cells, they are little hormone-making factories, you guys, 
and they make a form of estrogen called estrone. Essentially, this estrone can do a couple different things. One is that it can be aromatized. That's a fancy word. For my med school listeners, it's using the hormone aromatase. Regardless, it's making into androgen. So estrone, testosterone. And so fat cells are making testosterone. That sucks. Also, that high estrogen level is contributing to that feedback to the brain saying, hey, don't send out more FSH. We're okay. We're making enough estrogen. Other things that happen when you're overweight or obese is that your liver makes less sex hormone binding globulin. So like I said, with insulin resistance, you have less sex hormone binding globulin, more free circulating androgens having clinical effects, and obesity potentiates or makes worse insulin resistance. So if you have increased insulin levels, even more, an even further degree of insulin resistance, that's contributing to that steroid production pathway that is favoring the androgens or the male hormones. And so not every woman who is overweight or obese will have PCOS, and not every woman with PCOS will be overweight or obese. That's hard because there's a lot of misguided literature out there or people talking on social media, and there are plenty of thin patients with PCOS. It is an endocrine disease, a communication dysfunction between the brain and the ovary that obesity makes worse. Obesity can contribute to, but it is not exclusively associated with obesity. So wipe that out of your head. So I just talked for over 10 minutes about the causes of PCOS and the hormone dysfunction that leads to it without it all talking about the clinical signs and symptoms or the diagnostic criteria. And I think that's because so many people get hung up on the diagnostic criteria. They're missing the point. They're missing what causes the disease. But the diagnostic criteria are the diagnostic criteria. And so they're called the Rotterdam criteria. And I'm going to tell you what they are. And I'm going to give you my thoughts on them. Because you know, I always do that. The diagnosis is made by having two out of the three following things. One is hyperandrogenism. And that can be diagnosed by either blood levels that are elevated for androgens such as testosterone or DHEAS, or clinical signs of high androgens such as facial hair or acne or losing your hair in your like temporal area like a male powdered balding. Those are signs of high androgens. Number two is irregular or absent periods. And I'll go ahead and say most REIs, or at least myself, this is like hallmark of the disease here. And number three is polycystic appearing ovaries on ultrasound. What does that mean? Well, the criteria say it's about having a certain number of small little antral follicles that you see in each ovary that is higher than normal. However, those of us who do ultrasounds will say there's actually a very consistent pattern that's more than just egg count number. When the ovary is really a hormone production factory that's favoring androgens, there is a constant LH stimulation that is stimulating the thecal cells to make these androgens. 
and the thecal cells begin to hypertrophy or they grow and thicken. And so we actually see a thick central part of the ovary on ultrasound with all of these small antral follicles pushed to the outer surface, and that can be called the ring of pearls. So if you Google ring of pearls, you can see, well, you may see some pictures of rings that have pearls, but you'll see ultrasound pictures that actually have all the follicles next to each other on the outside that almost look like the pearls of a pearl necklace. But the truth is that many young or very normal women who have high ovarian reserve or many eggs left will also meet the official diagnosis just by counting the antral follicles. So 8 to 25% of normal females will meet this clinical diagnosis, and 14% of women on birth control pills will actually have ovaries that have enough small follicles to meet this definition, and they don't actually have PCOS. It's just a finding. So we have to be really careful there. Personally, for me, the diagnosis is made two out of three. I really want to see irregular periods, and maybe it's not severe like I never have my period. That's a really severe form of PCOS. Maybe it's not I skip months at a time. Maybe it's just my period's really not coming at that regular one to two day predictable interval. It'll be, hey, it's 30 days here and 38 days here and 28 days here. It's coming, so I know it's going to come, but it's not really regular. But I view irregular menses as really needs to be there for me to be thinking about this diagnosis. And why are your periods irregular? They are irregular because of this hormone dysfunction. So remember back or listen back to the menstrual cycle episode, FSH is what stimulates a follicle to grow. If a follicle doesn't grow, it doesn't ovulate. If it doesn't ovulate, then two things happens. Your body's not making enough estrogen to really thicken the lining nicely. And then there's no drop in progesterone after ovulation to signal to the body that it's time to bleed. I use the analogy all the time. It's probably terrible, but you know I love analogies. Imagine your uterus like a cup sitting under the faucet of a sink. And so the faucet is turned on with estrogen. And so normally in a normal month, if your body's going to ovulate, then your faucet is turned on, your body is making estrogen in the follicular phase, progesterone turns the faucet off. So after you ovulate, faucet is turned off and you have a cup full of water. When your progesterone levels drop as a signal you're not pregnant, the cup tumps over, that's your period, and then the cycle starts again. What happens in PCOS is very often you may have some bleeding that is not at all an actual period. What is happening is imagine that this low but constant estrogen stimulation from all the small follicles is like turning the faucet on partway. So you have your cup sitting under there and the faucet's on partway. So it's not filling up completely, but there's no progesterone because you never ovulate. And so the cup is getting full, the cup is getting full. There's no progesterone to turn it off. Therefore, there's no drop in progesterone to tell you to dump the cup over. And at some point, the cup is going to overflow. And that is your anovulatory bleed or your breakthrough bleeding or your random, I bled, but I didn't actually ovulate. Your uterus just overflowed the amount of endometrial tissue. While we are on the subject of irregular menses, and you just heard me say the problem is this hormone dysfunction, the ovaries aren't getting stimulated with FSH, there's no progesterone made because there's no ovulation, 
my biggest pet peeve is when patients are told, even by providers, that the problem is an estrogen to progesterone imbalance and that I need to give you progesterone pills because that's going to fix it. No. I mean, the truth is, yeah, there is no progesterone because you're not ovulating. You're not. But if I go put you on some random compounded progesterone blah, blah, blah every single day, that is not appropriate. It's actually a form of birth control, guys. Progesterone-only pills that you take every day, that's a form of birth control. So normalizing your estrogen to progesterone ratio is not what's going to help you here. You're not going to go magically get pregnant by supplementing your progesterone with PCOS. No progesterone because no ovulation. No ovulation because of hormone dysfunction. Just giving yourself progesterone, not going to cure the problem. What you will see, and sometimes we use as management here, is some progesterone pills to make you bleed. If I go back to my cup analogy, if you never have a period, your faucet is turned on because you have PCOS and your body's making some estrogen levels, your cup is getting full and full and full. It's never getting the stimulus to really tump it over. And so some of that water in the cup at the bottom has been sitting there for a long time, and that can predispose you to endometrial cancer or uterine cancer. And we as doctors are always fearful of cancer. We always want to catch it. And we don't want you to be doing anything that can cause you to have a higher risk of cancer. And so you may have an OBGYN or a doctor who says, I'm going to give you 10 days of progesterone pills to prevent you from getting cancer. And what they are doing is turning the fountain off. That's when you take progesterone. And then they're causing your cup to dump out. When you come off the progesterone, you have a drop in your levels and you will bleed. And they are getting rid of all those cells that have been sitting there in your uterus. And so progesterone can be a treatment for irregular periods so you don't develop uterine cancer. But... PCOS is not a problem, a hormone imbalance of estrogen and progesterone. No, PCOS is a hormone imbalance of estrogen and testosterone. The low progesterone is a side effect of not ovulating. But those Rotterdam criteria for diagnosing the disease is to have two out of the three. And so one, again, is high androgen signs that's either tested by blood or clinical symptoms. Number two, irregular periods. Number three, polycystic appearing ovaries on ultrasound. There are some other associated findings that many patients with PCOS have, and even though they aren't part of the diagnostic criteria, your doctor should be checking for some of these things or at least talking about management of them because they are important. The first one is insulin resistance, as we already talked about. And so 50 to 75% of patients with PCOS have insulin resistance, and so women who have PCOS need to be screened to see if they have insulin resistance. And this can be with a hemoglobin A1C, with a glucose tolerance test, with other different testing mechanisms, but it needs to be done in some way. Number two is high cholesterol. High cholesterol is associated with PCOS, and women need to be screened with a lipid panel. Now, I'll be honest, I don't always check all my patients with a lipid panel because I can't go put you on cholesterol-lowering medication if you're trying to get pregnant. It's a contraindication. However, sometimes I do test for it to have further evidence that we need to make lifestyle changes for you 
to have the highest chance of being healthy and having a healthy pregnancy. High cholesterol is actually the number one most common metabolic disorder in women with PCOS. 70% of women have at least one abnormal value. That should show you that there's probably a huge lifestyle component to this also. And there's other disorders that are frequently associated. The most common is thyroid or prolactin abnormalities, and so those hormones should be checked also. In some women who present a little abnormally, there are some zebras or more rare diseases that in medicine we don't talk about to every patient that your doctor may screen you for with certain blood testing depending on your presentation, how severe your androgen symptoms are, how severe your amenorrhea or lack of having periods are, what age you are when you presented with these symptoms. And these things can include things like ovarian tumors, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, Cushing syndrome, and more. And there is something called metabolic syndrome that has a high association with PCOS. And that is because of these hormone changes and metabolic dysfunction, especially seen with insulin resistance, causes other impacts on your body. So insulin resistance is obviously not just impacting your reproductive hormones. That has a huge impact on other organs and how your body functions. Metabolic syndrome is having three out of five clinical criteria. One is a large waist circumference. So if you measure your waist, it is large. One is having an elevated blood pressure. One is having an elevated triglyceride, which is part of the bad cholesterol. Having a low HDL, which is the good cholesterol. And the last one is having a high fasting glucose or having insulin resistance. So having three out of those five criteria diagnose a woman as having metabolic syndrome, which has other long-term implications for her life outside of reproduction. You now know all about PCOS, what causes it and what's really going on in your body. I'm going to dive into how do we treat PCOS, understanding that treatment is really multifactorial, meaning it depends where you are and what you're trying to do. Are you trying to get pregnant? Are you trying to prevent pregnancy? And I'm going to march through some of these, even though I could probably spend an entire episode on treatment alone. And we're going to start right out with my favorite, which is diet. So I think starting with lifestyle factors that can improve hormone dysfunction with PCOS is the most important thing to talk about, because regardless of if you're trying to get pregnant or not, having your body function the best that it can is going to be the most important. Anytime I talk about diet... I always start by saying, one, I have a huge interest in this. I was a nutrition major. I have a master's in clinical research. I love evaluating studies when it comes to diet. But two, it is hard to study the relationship of diet and fertility. There are other factors at play, and it is a hard thing to control. So the vast majority of our studies are observational. We take people and we see what they've done and what they haven't done, and we see the outcome with those different groups. And I'm going to start in true nat fashion, right where all the controversy lives, which is carbohydrates. And I don't think there's any real controversy here. I think there's just a lot of skewed perception. Carbohydrates are important components of a human diet. Both the quantity and the quality impact your insulin sensitivity and your metabolism of glucose. Whole grains are antioxidants. They have anti-inflammatory properties and they can have beneficial impacts on how your body processes glucose, lowering insulin resistance, and associated with improved live birth rates, 
both in natural fertility and in IVF studies. That alone should be all I have to say about that. Whole grains are good for you. They're good for your glucose and your insulin. They are healthy. However, there is so much out there about low-carb diets and keto that I'm going to say this. Being in a state of ketosis is a state of weight loss. And you heard me say that obesity and being overweight amplify the problems you see with PCOS. And if you are in ketosis and you lose weight quickly, losing weight can be beneficial because your fat cells make some estrogen. That estrogen and testosterone is going to lower when you have less fat cells. Your insulin resistance is going to improve when you have less fat cells. So there is a transient benefit to losing weight and ketosis can help you lose weight. That's why you will see that it is sometimes a fast track weight loss plan. So you do see hormone changes with a ketogenic diet that are temporary and transient. However, we haven't associated the long-term use of a ketogenic diet with an improvement in pregnancy rates. And one study even showed a decrease in success with IVF. Less eggs were retrieved and there were no pregnancies in a group that had gone onto a ketogenic diet in between cycles. So again, a ketogenic diet or a low-carb diet can be associated with a fast track to weight loss. Often this is because it is just the only thing that's pulling patients off of a standard American diet. And of course, any diet where you're also eliminating out sugar and processed foods is going to be good for you and result in some weight loss. It's not necessarily that those whole grain carbohydrates are bad for you. It is that you're eliminating out so many other things. And I think it's important to realize that the old dogma with PCOS was lose weight at any cost. The weight is the problem. The weight is the problem. And you already heard me talk about how being overweight and obese amplifies the problem. And weight loss can help reverse some of these changes. But as our science is getting better, we are learning that it is more than just losing weight that's important. The things we are putting into our body, the quality also matters. There have also been studies, one of them is really well-known called the Nurse's Health Study, which has showed us that for every serving of protein that came from a plant-based source over an animal source, women had higher rates of ovulation. Similarly, embryo development in IVF cycles has been shown to be lower in higher consumptions of meat, especially red meat, although that study wasn't particularly in PCOS. It was in all patients. But other studies, especially outside the fertility community, but looking at insulin resistance, have shown us that protein from animal sources increases insulin resistance and is highly inflammatory to the body. There's also a big association with advanced glycolation end products, or AGEs, and your diet consumption and smoking. So we're going to take it, you're not smoking, okay? There, that's done. So why are we putting dietary things into our bodies that are so bad? Getting AGEs from meat and how your meats are cooked, that's one of the number one dietary sources. And AGEs can cause cellular damage, inflammation, insulin resistance, and lead to obesity. Therefore, because of all the reasons we've talked about here, they are so bad for women with PCOS. So in PCOS patients, I'm recommending lowering your meat content, so tending toward a whole food plant-based diet, eliminating out sugar and processed foods. Whole grain carbohydrates are not the same as your refined processed foods. So improving your insulin resistance by eating lots of fruits and vegetables, by eating whole grains, 
by limiting your meat and by knowing that things like soy, omega-3 fatty acids, good healthy fats are not bad for you. And other lifestyle factors, if you are overweight, you should try to lose weight. This is not your doctor or me trying to be mean to you. We know how difficult it is for patients who are overweight to lose weight. We know that that's a constant struggle, especially if you're trying to get pregnant. However, it's important. And that's why studies have shown that even losing a small percentage of your body weight can restore ovulation because we talked about how fat cells make insulin resistance worse. They make their own hormones. They are contributing to this extra imbalance. And so trying to lose weight is going to be important. But outside of diet and weight loss, other things that we do, one is that vitamin D supplementation. I'm putting all my PCOS patients on vitamin D. This research is emerging, but it's looking like vitamin D is anti-inflammatory and helping combat some of the insulin resistance and inflammatory things we are seeing in patients with PCOS. You're also going to most likely hear your doctor talk about metformin. And what is metformin? Metformin is what's called an insulin sensitizing agent. And so In general, it is improving the sensitivity of your cells to insulin. And so their cells can take sugar in easier. Therefore, you're lowering your resistance to insulin. Your liver's not making as much sugar because your body is getting what it needs out of your bloodstream. And so it is improving how your body is functioning. It has some not-so-fun side effects like stomach upset or diarrhea, and usually these get better with time. So you'll often see us titrate a dose up. And not every patient with PCOS needs to be on metformin, but certainly if you have evidence of insulin resistance or if you have symptoms of metabolic syndrome, often your doctor is going to be recommending this. Metformin alone in some patients, even though it was a small amount, has been associated with improving ovulation just by dropping this insulin resistance level and therefore letting the ovary function a little bit better. And certainly we're seeing that combined treatment can be beneficial for patients when we're trying to get them to ovulate or respond to fertility treatments. And another thing that can sometimes help with insulin resistance is a supplement called myo-inositol. And if you've heard of that, what it is, essentially, it's a second messenger in how the body processes sugar. And so taking myo-inositol has been shown to improve insulin sensitivity in some patients. And so that is something that you may hear a doctor or hear other people talk about to help manage PCOS. And one thing I do not like my patients with PCOS taking is Vitex. Vitex is an herb. It's called chaseberry. And it changes how your hormones function. It may increase your progesterone levels, which is like a birth control. In any ways, the problem is not a progesterone imbalance. So don't waste your time with Vitex. And if you come into my office and you tell me you're taking it, I'm going to draw a big line through it. Now, if you are not trying to get pregnant with PCOS... I want to regulate some of your other symptoms. And so depending on how irregular your periods are, we may talk about putting you on every few months a dose of progesterone to get that lining inside your cup of your uterus to dump out so that you have a period. Or we may talk about birth control pills. And I hate all the talk about birth control pills masking the symptoms. Birth control pills are a great treatment for PCOS, not just because you get regular periods. I don't really care that much about that but they also increase your sex hormone binding globulin. 
So they increase your SHBG, therefore lowering your testosterone and your free androgen levels. And birth control pills also decrease the production of LH from the pituitary gland. Remember that LH is the driving force to make androgens inside the ovary. So you are both having less androgens produced and less androgens circulating free in your blood. Therefore, birth control pills are really great at helping decrease some of the clinical symptoms that women have with PCOS. And another treatment, if you're not trying to get pregnant, but you do have clinical androgen signs, is spironolactone. Spironolactone is an aldosterone antagonist, but it also binds the androgen receptor. So those androgens can't act on your tissues. This can cause birth defects if you get pregnant, so you will see us do this in conjunction with birth control pills or effective contraception. And what if you are trying to get pregnant? Well, I can't use spironolactone or birth control pills. I need to make you ovulate. That's usually the number one problem with how PCOS is impacting fertility. It's not the only problem. That's really important to know. Because of the metabolic dysfunction, the high insulin resistance, There have been associations with PCOS and poor egg quality and higher miscarriage rates. So ovulating is not your only problem. We need to be doing everything we can to improve those metabolic abnormalities that you have. But I'm a huge believer before I'm going to make you ovulate, I want to make sure that I'm not missing something else. Because I see plenty of couples who the woman has PCOS, but the male partner has no sperm or the woman has PCOS, and also her fallopian tubes are blocked. I'm not saying it is wrong at all if your general OBGYN says, let's try a few months of making you ovulate and see if you get pregnant, especially if you are young. That's a fine approach. But by the time you get to me, I want to know everything. I love data. I'm super nerdy. I don't want to be missing something. You'll be mad at me if you just paid money and we tried many months of getting you pregnant if it was never going to work. And so, presuming everything is normal, our first approach is ovulation induction. We can either do that with oral medications or injectable hormones. Oral medications include letrozole or Clomid. You may have heard of these. Now, they work differently. Clomid binds to the brain while letrozole works peripherally, but the net result is very similar, meaning they lower the body's estrogen level. So if you remember this feedback between estrogen and FSH is a little dysfunctional because those small follicles are making estrogen or the fat cells are making some estrogen, estrogen is lowered when you use these medications. The brain then says, oh, there's less estrogen. I need to send out a higher dose of FSH and you'll have a follicle grow. Clomid's been around longer, so it was the medicine we used for a very long time. A study then came out comparing letrozole and Clomid and showed specifically for women with PCOS, there were higher success rates with ovulation induction with letrozole. And then a recent study, like just came out this year in 2019, showing that for some resistant women with PCOS, the combination of letrozole-clomid together may actually have even improved success rates. We sometimes add on extra treatments with oral medications, such as metformin, dexamethasone, using a trigger shot, progesterone after you ovulate to try to improve the efficacy of the cycle. Injectable hormones are gonadotropins. And so that means that we are actually giving the hormone that causes the follicle to grow and the egg to mature. And that's an option as well. I'll be honest, 
Gonadotropins are tough with women with PCOS because finding that magic spot where you ovulate just one or two eggs, but not seven eggs, can sometimes be difficult. And the rate of multiples is different with these two different treatments. So with oral medications, the rate of having multiples, twins is about 5 to 8%, triplets is 1 in 300. And I have certainly seen triplets with Clomid or Letrozole cycles alone. So don't act like 1 in 300 is zero because it's not. With injectable medications, these numbers are higher. So the risk of twins is about 20 to 30%, and the risk of triplets is about 1 to 3%. Those numbers scare us as REs. And the other option we have is IVF or in vitro fertilization. Without going into it in tons of detail, IVF is great, has the highest success rates of all treatments that we can offer. With PCOS, you have a lot of eggs. You have all those antral follicles. So we're often going to get a lot of eggs at egg retrieval, and there is strength in numbers with IVF. It is also the lowest chance of multiples because we control that better by how many we put inside. So we put one embryo inside, you have a 1% to 2% chance of multiples based on identical splitting of an embryo. And in some women with PCOS that are resistant to oral medications and over-respond to injectable hormones, this is the only option. So I talk about the success rates of all of these options with my patients with PCOS, and especially if you're older and getting started on your family planning journey later, this may be a good option for you. Guys, I'm going to wrap it up here. I appreciate you listening if you've listened to this point. We will probably retouch on PCOS and go into treatment and diet specifics more in a different episode later, but I wanted to put it all here because I talk about this all the time. It is so prevalent, and I feel really strongly that it's important for patients to do everything that they can to take control of this disorder. And thank you so much for listening. I appreciate all your support of the As A Woman podcast. Please send me all comments and feedback. Love to hear what you'd like in future episodes. Follow along on the Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD and check out the blog, nataliecrawfordmd.com. And stay tuned for next week, episode 21, The Secret to Instagram. Mm-hmm.